welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about Iranian public opinion and take a look at an in-depth survey of Iranian views about the pandemic, their country's nuclear policy, regional security, economy, and domestic politics. My guest today is Dr. Nasi Gallagher, a professor of public policy and director of the Center for International and Security Studies at University of Maryland. Before coming to the University of Maryland, Dr. Gallagher was the executive director of the Clinton administration's Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Task Force and worked with the special advisor to the president. Nancy, welcome to the Iran podcast. Well, it's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. Um, So let me just explain to our audience that you have been doing a number of years, you've been doing these public opinion surveys in Iran, covering a range of issues from politics to the economy, and now recently also COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, Tell us first a little background about uh, this polling, what you've been doing over the years, how it started, and uh, just a bird's eye view of this of this Iran polling situation. Sure. Um, about 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit more, Ibrahim Mohseni came into our PhD program. And Ibrahim is a dual Iranian-American uh, citizen. He started working with Steve and Clay. And so they did the first public opinion poll in Iran um, back in the 2000s. Um, Ibrahim graduated from our program, fully trained in American-style survey methodology, returned to Tehran where he's continued the work there. And he and Clay and I started doing polls in Iran on a regular basis in 2013. And we've done probably on average two polls a year since then. Interesting. So let's talk about this year's poll. I know you did some sampling back in the fall around October, and then you also did some more recently after Joe Biden became president. And there's a range of questions on the pandemic, economy, politics. Let's start from the pandemic and people's perceptions on, uh, first of all, the actual effect of the pandemic. I know you have questions about um how the number of people um, that each respondent knows that has lost their lives to COVID. There's some interesting numbers there. And um, people's also perception of how the government has handled the pandemic in Iran. Yeah, and I should say, you know, these are nationally representative surveys. We're not just talking to people in Tehran. Um, so we're talking to people, you know, all over Iran, we're calling in from Canada. So that's how we're getting access to people. Um, and when we asked, you know, whether they knew somebody who'd gotten sick from the coronavirus, 80% of Iranians now know somebody who's gotten sick and 50% wow. know somebody who's died. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, very widespread in the country. Um, but those figures, you know, are comparable to the figures that you're getting in the United States or the UK, for example. Um, what I found particularly interesting is, you know, there's strong support, strong, but not unanimous support in Iran, as is true in the United States for having the government take measures to slow the spread of the coronavirus, even if that has a negative impact on the economy. Um, But people, by and large, are positive about how their government has done, 
We asked a question about, you know, how good of a job do you think your country has done? And 76% of the public in Iran says they think their government has done a pretty decent job of dealing with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. That number is comparable when we ask about the public health care system. Uh, and how well they thought the public health care system had done. You also had a solid majority that thought the public health care system had performed pretty well. Obviously, it's it's been a really tough time for the people of Iran, but when we asked, you know, do you think your country is more divided or less divide, divided because of the coronavirus? It's about 50-50. Mm-hmm. 50% say more united uh, 42% say more divided. So in some ways, I think it is pulling the country together. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And um, I want to also ask you about the economy, because I know this is also something that you have been asking in your polls over the years, and it also connects to the pandemic and COVID. Um, if you can tell us about people's perceptions or questions about the overall state of the economy and then some more interesting details that you found. Yeah, now we've been asking a number of questions about the economy every time we run a survey. Uh, and one of the standard questions is just how good or bad is the country's general economic situation? Uh, and right now, you know, about 75% of the public says it's somewhat bad or very bad, right? Mm-hmm. More, a majority says very bad. Um, so that sounds like a big number, uh, and it is a big number. But when we ask people, you know, on the whole, is the economy getting better or getting worse? You know, you see 68% of the public saying it's still getting worse, um, but that number is pretty much stabilizing. So I would say that, you know, economic circumstances has been, have been bad uh, for a long time. And they're seen as getting worse, uh, but it's not, you know, sort of a perpetual downward slide, even with the pandemic added on top of all the other problems that they have. Mm-hmm. And um, I also saw an interesting uh, question that refers to different factors that impact the economy yeah. or are the reasons for why they think the economy is so bad. Talk about those. I saw sanctions, corruption, and a few other options. Yeah, no, you know, we've asked for a very long time whether people think that foreign sanctions and pressure or domestic economic mismanagement and corruption has the greatest negative effect on the economy. And Iranians consistently answer that domestic economic mismanagement and corruption is the more significant factor. So when we ask the question that way in the most recent survey, uh, almost 60% of people said that it was economic mismanagement and 35% said that the biggest factor was sanctions. This time, we did what's called a split sample. So half the people got the standard version of the question, and half the people got a version that gave them three choices, with the coronavirus added in as a third choice. When we asked it that way, uh, 52% said that it was economic mismanagement. So you still have a majority blaming that factor. 20% said the coronavirus pandemic and about 25% said sanctions. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting because, um, just to make a comment, we see the Iranian government over the years attempting to try to blame the situation of the economy entirely on U.S. sanctions. And then you also see on this side, the U.S. administration, especially the Trump administration, trying to downplay any impact of sanctions and basically blaming it entirely on the mismanagement and corruption of the Iranian government. And these are interesting numbers to hear from from people's perceptions. I also know, going back to this very topic, that you ask about specifically about the impact of sanctions on the Iranian economy and Iranian lives. And um, it's, it's interesting to hear some of those numbers of what people's perceptions are to the degree that U.S. sanctions impact their country and their economy, their life. Well, and the Trump administration really tried to have it both ways. Because on the one hand, you know, they talked about the United States imposing crippling sanctions on Iran Mm -hmm. uh, and put a lot of emphasis on the role that the sanctions play in the bad economy in Iran, with the implication being that if Iran did the things that the United States wanted it to do to get sanctions relief, the economy would get better. And, you know, our data basically shows that the Iranian people, by and large, don't think that sanctions are their biggest problem. When we, the Trump administration did try to say that sanctions had no effect on the availability of humanitarian supplies. Right, medicines, medical devices, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And they would try to blame those shortages purely on corruption, mismanagement, the black market, those kinds of things. So we ask a question specifically about that. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we ask several questions specifically about that. About humanitarian, uh, the impact of but, sanctions on humanitarian trade. Yeah. So we one thing we ask was, you know, in your experience, as compared to about a year ago, has the availability of most foreign-made medicine and medical equipment in Iran, you know, increased a lot, decreased a lot. We gave them a range of choices. And 64% of respondents said that in their experience, medical supplies were harder to get now than they were a year ago, even though sanctions aren't supposed to, according Mm -hmm. to the United States, be affecting that. Um, And we also asked people whether they thought that the United States was deliberately trying to keep Iran from having access to medical supplies, uh, or if that was basically an unintended side effect of its policies. And, you know, in October, while it was still the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. 52% of people said that the United States that they thought the United States is definitely seeking to prevent humanitarian-related products from reaching Iran. Uh, When we asked the same question in February, so after Biden had taken office, that number had come down to about 45%. So, Mm. you know, a little bit of an improvement. um, And we saw that, you know, sort of slight willingness to give the United States more of a benefit of the doubt after Biden's election on a number of different questions. But you still have a majority of the Iranian people believing that the United States is deliberately trying to prevent them from getting access to medical supplies in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
That is very interesting. And I also think this is a great segue to um, then talk about views, Iranian views of the United States and steps to improve relations, the JCPOA. I know you've asked about all of these. It's interesting that I see seven in 10 Iranians followed the U.S. election. This is also the same thing I've observed. And nine in 10 know that Biden has won. <laughs> That's also yeah. very interesting. So talk about this uh, second and some of the questions about uh, views of the United States and relations. You know, I was very impressed that the Iranians clearly know more about American politics than the American public <laughs> knows about Iranian politics. Uh, less than 1% of people thought that Donald Trump had won re-election. <laughs> uh, and obviously the figures are quite different in the United States there. Sure. Um, you know, Views of the United States overall, obviously, still are not very good. Um, but there is the hope that Biden's policies may be somewhat less hostile than Trump's policies were. Uh, we've asked a question, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being completely hostile and 10 being completely friendly. Where do you think Trump's policies fell? And 70% of respondents said that they thought his policies were at the completely hostile end of the spectrum. Uh, when we ask the same question about Biden, you only have about 30% who say they expect mm. him to be completely hostile. Mm -hmm. And the you know, average score for Trump is a one. The average score for Biden is a three, right? Which is still not great but it's a step in the right direction. And you have about 40% of the Iranian public saying that they hope Biden's policies will be neutral or better towards Iran. Um, so there is, you know, at least some optimism mm -hmm. there. And you see that translating into a little more support for the nuclear deal, for example. Um, we've been asking about attitudes towards that agreement ever since it was negotiated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it went from having very, very high public support uh, up in the 70s overall with 42% saying they were very supportive of it right after it was negotiated. Um, down, you know, during the Trump administration, you had majority disapproval. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we're back to having a slim majority say they approve of the JCPOA and only about 40% saying that they disapprove of it. So, you know, that's, that I see as a positive step. Um, we also asked about expectations for the Biden administration. Were they, how likely do people think it was that they were going to re-enter the nuclear deal? Mm -hmm. um, and there's general optimism that the United States is going to re-enter, but less confidence that it will actually abide by its obligations once it re-enters. So about 60% expect the United States to rejoin the JCPOA, but 60% doubt that it will actually lift sanctions. Oh, wow. And yeah, now that's, you know, that's a big problem that the United States is facing not only vis-a-vis -vis Iran, um, but vis-a-vis -a, -vis a lot of its other international obligations too. 
is convincing other countries that not only do we intend to formally rejoin some of these agreements and organizations that Trump pulled out of, uh, but that we're actually going to be able to make good on our promises over time. Mm -hmm. And there's also one interesting question I see here about meaningful steps um, taken by the United States. There's been a number of options like lifting sanctions or travel ban. Talk about these uh, different options and the percentages, if you can. Yeah, we were interested in things that you can call confidence building measures, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And, you know, there's some technical reasons why it's harder for the United States to get back into the nuclear deal than it was for the United States to rejoin the Paris Accord, for example. Mm -hmm. So we knew that it might take a little bit of time. Biden has clearly said he intends to do that. Uh, but that it might take some time before the United States actually could get back into the nuclear deal. And it could take some time after that before the Iranian public starts to see the benefits of sanctions relief. So we wanted to ask about a number of other steps that the United States could take to basically signal goodwill um, and help build confidence that we do want to get back in the deal. We want the Iranian people to enjoy the benefits of the deal. We want to improve relations overall. Um, and we basically, you know, gave a list of measures. And for each one, we asked people, would this be very meaningful to you? Somewhat meaningful, not that meaningful, or not meaningful at all. And, you know, you have... A very strong majority, 92% of Iranians say that lifting sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran would be meaningful to them, with 81% saying that that would be a very meaningful move Mm -hmm. that the United States could take. Um, The other two moves that the United States could make that would be considered very meaningful, right, returning and fully adhering to the terms of the JCPOA. And condemning the assassination of the scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh as a violation of international law. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I think Americans don't think too much about, mm-hmm. but that it would really mean a lot to the people of Iran. Um, some of the other steps that we ask about were things that would be politically easier for Biden to do, right? The first three, the ones that would be most meaningful to the Iranian people would also be the most politically costly for Biden to take. So, you know, stop blocking Iran's application for a loan from the IMF, lifting the travel ban. Um, you know, those are considered meaning at least somewhat meaningful mm-hmm. by a majority of Iranians, but not as meaningful as the first three that I talked about. Interestingly, uh, sending Nora's greetings to the people of Iran uh, is actually a majority say that that would be not meaningful, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's probably because the Trump administration sent Nora's greetings that were worded in such a way that they were clearly more intended as a criticism of the Iranian government Mm -hmm. than a genuine gesture of goodwill. Mm-hmm. 
And there's also another interesting question I see because, and this is very relevant to events of these days or this week, um, as we see an impasse basically created in diplomacy between Tehran and Washington, with each side telling the other that you have to take the first step in in the process of mutual compliance or return to the JCPOA. Yeah. And your question is about um, views on new negotiations despite sanctions. Talk about this question and what the what the view of the people is. Yeah, no, we you know we asked questions about different processes you could go through to get mm-hmm. the United States and Iran both in full compliance, and not surprisingly, you know Iranians would be more comfortable with a process where the United States went first and fully re-entered and upheld its obligations, and then Iran would return to the deal. The United States, obviously, would be more comfortable with the reverse process, mm-hmm. where Iran goes first and fully adheres. Uh, and that's basically you know, unacceptable to the people of Iran. Right? They did that once, uh, and then the United States withdrew. They don't want to do it again. So you have a majority support for a process where they both basically go at the same time. And I think that's where things are going to have to end up. But it's very clear from the questions that we've asked that there is very little support for Iran negotiating with the United States about anything else until it has returned to the JCPOA and adhered to its obligations Um, ideally for several years, to show that it really is serious and can be trusted over time. So I think, you know, that this is something that is important for the United States to understand, is that, you know, the government and the people of Iran might be open to talking about additional nuclear measures and measures to address some of the United States' other concerns after the United States has demonstrated that it's actually going to live up to the commitments it's already made. Mm-hmm. And um, after um, the JCPOA, um, we know that President Biden or his administration have uh, said multiple times that they intend to um, do follow-on negotiations, as they say, on other issues beyond the nuclear program and the JCPOA. I know you've also asked about um, these issues, some of the issues that President Biden has mentioned, for example, Iran's missile program, Iran's regional policy, and even domestic uh, issues and human rights. What are the attitudes toward these broader negotiations beyond the JCPOA and the process to get there? You know, right now, people don't want to negotiate over any of those other issues until the United States has returned to the JCPOA and complied for a few years. Mm -hmm. So if you ask about specific issues now, the response is largely negative. Um, On terms of the nuclear questions that we ask about, you know, we ask about extending the duration of the JCPOA limits for a few years. Right now, that's unacceptable to 60% of the Iranian public. Um, If you ask that question again, after the United States had been complying for a few years and said, you know, would you be willing to extend these terms for a few years in return for additional sanctions relief, you might get a different answer. Uh, Some of the other things we asked about, 
like making the JCPOA limits on Iran's nuclear program permanent and ending uranium enrichment in, in Iran uh, have much, much higher unacceptable rates. You know, And those are things that have been unacceptable to the Iranian public ever since we started asking about them uh, while the negotiations were underway. And I wouldn't expect that to change. Likewise, when we ask about you know, ending ballistic missile testing by Iran, that's considered unacceptable right now by 83% of the Iranian public. Uh, they're a little bit more positive to, or a little bit less negative to potentially limiting the range of Iranian ballistic missiles. That's something that the leadership has talked about. When we ask the question applied not just to Iran, but limiting the range of ballistic missiles of all countries in the Middle East, mm -hmm. then you start to get more interest, right? Um, and I think, you know, that this is part of it is that you know, right now the Iranian public does see their missile program as something that makes them safer. Mm -hmm. And they're not interested in limits on testing, limits on deployment, limits on range, unless something else happens that helps them feel safer. Um, one question that we ask about that you do get a majority saying could be acceptable depending on the circumstances would be an agreement limiting the exports of advanced weaponry by arms producers to all countries in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, there are some questions about regional security where the public is positive to diplomatic measures right now. So, for example, we asked about some discussions that Iran has been having with other Middle Eastern countries about de-escalating tensions in the region. And almost 46% uh, said that those discussions are worthwhile and should be expanded. Mm -hmm. uh, another 35% said they should continue, but aren't likely to do much and only 13% said that they're a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Likewise, when we asked about the situation in Yemen and whether people you know, thought that Iran should use its influence to advance diplomatic negotiations, uh, to help the Houthis defeat their opponents, or should just stay out, you had 44% saying that Iran should use its influence for a diplomatic solution. 30% saying that it should use it militarily, uh, and 20% saying that Iran shouldn't be involved at all. Mm -hmm. This is actually an interesting section. I'm glad we're um, moving into this. That's generally about Iran's regional involvement and the IRGC and the opinion of IRGC's military presence in the region and the, as, as many see it as an expansionist policy as opposed to diplomacy. You've had a number of questions on this. Some of them became very uh, heated in discussions online also. But um, explain some of these questions, for example, what they the perception is of IRGC's presence in the region, how that made people feel more secure, less secure? Um, you know, we've, we've asked whether its activities in the Middle East make Iran more or less secure um, a couple of different times. And you have pretty consistent support in the 75 
to, you know, 89% range of people saying that they think on balance, the IRGC's activities in the Middle East make Iran more secure. Mm-hmm. I think the more Iranians feel under pressure, the more likely they are to say that the IRGC's activities make them more secure. Mm-hmm. One thing that we've asked is, you know, if Iran were to make concessions to basically stop the activities of the IRGC and stop the support that they're providing for groups in the region, do you think that that would make the United States more willing to accommodate Iran in other areas of contention? Or do you think the United States would see that as a sign of Iranian weakness and basically just press for more concessions from Iran in other areas? And right now, you know, people aren't confident that if they made concessions, if they scaled back Iran's, you know, so-called malign activities in the region, that the United States would reciprocate. Only 15% thought that the United States would reciprocate. 56% thought that the United States would see this as a sign of weakness and try to extract more concessions from Iran. And about 20% said it wouldn't have much effect one way or the other. Mm -hmm. There's also another interesting question I see in an overwhelming majority um, had a similar response to that about evidence of violation of Iranian waters, airspace, or an attack on Iranian vessels, aircrafts. Talk about this question and their response to that. Yeah, you know, I think that... We've asked about, you know, a number of sort of tit-for-tat military activities in the region where, you know, Iran, Israel, the United States, the Persian Gulf countries have accused each other of taking, you know, various actions to sabotage tankers or to attack facilities. Um, And we were really interested to know if the Iranian public thinks that Whenever something like that happens to Iran, uh, it needs to respond in kind, or if that was just going to encourage a cycle of escalation that could get really dangerous. Uh, And, you know, 72% say that whenever there's evidence of a violation of Iranian waters, airspace, or an attack on Iranian vessels, personnel, Iran needs to respond in kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, Basically, it's just going to keep happening. And about 20%, 23% say that, you know, rather than retaliating in kind, Iran should be primarily careful to make sure these incidents don't multiply and turn into bigger conflicts. We ask a version of that same question recently about assassinations of important high-ranking figures. And there you still have a majority who say that it's important to respond in kind to make such incidents less likely in the future. Uh, But the size of that majority is significantly smaller. So 61% say that Iran needs to respond in kind to make such incidents less likely in the future. While 36% say that seeking revenge will not make such incidents less likely and will only make Iran less safe. Instead, Iran should take diplomatic and legal action to punish the perpetrator. So there's still a sense that Iran needs to do something. 
but there is a greater willingness to pursue diplomatic and legal recourse as long as such options are available. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a section about other countries and organizations. I find this, especially the list of countries, interesting. If you can explain um, people's views or opinion, the question and the um, favorability of these countries from Russia all the way to the United States. You know, this is, you know, something else we've been asking for a long time. We give people a name of countries and organizations and ask whether they have a very favorable, somewhat favorable, somewhat unfavorable, or very unfavorable attitude. Um, Historically, Germany has been a country that has had a particularly favorable response uh, from Iranians. And what we see is that as people in Iran have gotten more frustrated with the Europeans for not basically following through uh, on the economic benefits and investment that the people of Iran hoped for, uh, the favorability of countries like Germany has slid somewhat. So, you know, now it's about 45%. 46% favorable, same percent unfavorable. Favorability for you know the United Kingdom is much lower, has always been because of the history with Iran. Uh, and for the United States, it's been you know basically in the basement for a long time. Only five percent of Iranians hold a very favorable attitude towards the United States after the election of Joe Biden, when the numbers had actually improved somewhat. And 73% still hold a very unfavorable attitude. If you ask about the American people, though, it's much more evenly divided. Mm -hmm. So right now, about 45% have at least a somewhat favorable view of the American people. Uh, 49% say that it's unfavorable. So the only other countries, you know, where the negative ratings are that high uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, 80% unfavorable. The UAE is somewhat better uh, with a 60% unfavorable rating. China and Russia are really interesting. So, you know, favorability towards those two has generally been going up over time as they were seen as being more reliable trading partners and coming through with somewhat more of the cooperation that was promised. But we saw when we asked this question about China in October, there had been a big drop in favorability. There had been a 20-point drop. And we were really surprised by that because that was at a point in time when China was negotiating a long-term economic agreement with Iran that people in our survey were generally positive towards. So we couldn't figure out, you know, why are they so much more negative to China if they're positive about this agreement that's being negotiated. And when we went and checked China's favorability in other countries, uh, we found about a 20% drop around the world. Uh, Because of the pandemic? Because of the pandemic. Mm. Um, So when we asked the question again in February, there had been a 10-point rebound uh, favorability now is, you know, close to 50% towards China. And it'll just be interesting to see how that evolves over time. But we've been, you know, asking a question about trading relations and whether people think that Iran should 
focused more on trying to improve its relations with Western countries or Eastern countries. And for a long time, people wanted their, you know, Iran to be focusing mostly on the West. But we're seeing that shift to, you know, larger numbers of people saying that Iran really should turn eastward. Mm-hmm. And um, I also see some interesting segments about internal politics. I want to ask you about two uh, major areas. First, I know you ask a question about political figures and mm-hmm. what people uh, think about them. Uh, talk about some of these important figures and their their popularity. As I see an interesting list here and interesting answers. Yeah. No. You know, we've been asking about various political figures. The exact list changes depending on who is a prominent person at a particular point in time. Uh, you know, so somebody like President Rouhani, we've been asking about consistently, Mohammed Zarif, Ghalibaf, uh, Raisi, you know, those people we've been asking about consistently over time. Some other people, um, you know, less frequently. Basically, you know, what we see is that Rouhani's popularity was very high after the nuclear deal was negotiated. Zarif's popularity was even higher. Uh, Over time, Rouhani's popularity has fallen off quite dramatically. Uh, So right now, you know, he's only got about a 35% overall favorability rating. Zarif's standing is somewhat better. He's, he's, still up in the 60s in terms of overall favorability. Uh, The person who's really had the most significant increase in popularity in recent years is Saeed Ibrahim Raisi. Mm -hmm. And he went from having a a popularity ratings around 50% uh, after the most recent presidential election uh, to being up close to 80% now. Uh, And when we saw the really big increase in his popularity ratings was when he took over a role, basically leading anti-corruption efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think that it's the anti-corruption efforts that contribute to his popularity. Um, And we did ask people who had favorable or unfavorable attitudes towards uh, Rouhani, Raisi, and Galibaf, if they could tell us, you know, kind of what the main reasons were, why they felt that way about these various individuals. And, you know, there you see that it has very much to do with Raisi's anti-corruption efforts. Ibrahim Raisi um, is the, currently the head of Iranian judiciary. And interestingly, he ran against Rouhani in the 2017 presidential election, but actually lost to him. But um, these are interesting figures that you're getting. So one question that I see um, a lot of people are curious to no, is when you talk about these very sensitive topics of both Iranian po- politics, national security, regional policy, which is very, very sensitive in Iran, how how do you fare the responses of people? Are people generally willing to talk about these, to give their opinion? Do you feel like they're being yeah. completely honest? What are the challenges in talking about these questions? Um 
I would say that, you know, it's obviously people worry about how difficult it is and how reliable it is to poll in a country that's not a completely free democracy. And so we're very sensitive to a lot of those types of concerns. Um, but one thing we've found is that people are actually more willing to answer telephone public opinion surveys in Iran. The response rate there is much higher than it is in the United States. And people generally, if you listen in to the survey, they're not giving sort of rote answers. Um, they actually take time. They think about their answers to the questions. They sometimes will argue with the person who's asking them questions about why they think the question should be worded differently, or they'll provide information explaining their answers. You know, so the sense is that, that there's a lot of engagement in those interviews, that people aren't just acting like automatons. Um, one thing that we've been doing on a regular basis, and this is described in detail in the appendix to our poll report, is doing a sensitivity analysis where we go through the survey and identify all the questions where we think there's a politically correct answer, you know, an answer that the government would want people to give mm -hmm. and a politically incorrect answer. Uh, to see how many people are willing to give politically incorrect answers. Because it would be one thing if, you know, it's the same sort of small number of brave people who are giving politically incorrect answers all the time, and everybody else is just saying what the government wants them to say. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not what we find. Almost everybody gives at least one politically incorrect answer at some point in the survey. Another thing that we've done as a check is to see whether people who get their news from foreign broadcasting sources like the Voice of America Persia or BBC, um, if they give different answers and answers that are more likely to be at odds with what the government says. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't tend to see any significant difference depending on people's news sources, which makes me think that it's not just that people have internalized government propaganda. Mm -hmm. And I also want to ask about your methodology. I'm looking at a list of the different provinces that you poll people. It goes all the way from Al-Borz and Ardebil through various provinces and then eventually also Tehran. I see rural um, populations. I see urban. If you can talk about the methodology, this telephone um, yeah. survey method and also the margin of error for your studies. So, you know, the survey sample size tends to be right around 1,000, which means that the margin of error is plus or minus 3.1%. Uh, so if, you know, we have, a, you know, for these questions that we ask over and over again, if there's been a shift from one time that we ask to the next that's less than 3%, we don't consider that to be a significant change. Mm -hmm. If it's more than 3%, then it's significant. Uh, and also, obviously, if we see it happening multiple times as we ask, you know, the, the trend line becomes more and more significant. Um, the surveys are conducted, they're phone call-in surveys from Canada. Our Rand Poll is our partner 
It's run by another former PhD student of mine. Uh, so somebody that I know well and trust uh, who's been doing this for a long time. And they have a methodology, you know, to try to randomly select households throughout Iran, um, and, you know, make sure that they get basically, um, you know, a equal distribution of men and women. Uh, they're able to adjust the sample statistically to make sure that the distribution of uh, different ethnic groups, for example, you know, is comparable to the distribution that it is in Iran. And again, you know, in the methodology appendix, we talk about some of the checks that we run to try to make sure that our sample is as representative as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting. I'm looking at a table about ethnicity. You'll have Persian, Gilag, Turk, Azari, Kurd, Lur, Arab, Baluch. And it's a very interesting um, sample as far as age. Uh, sex, male, female, the various age ranges. I encourage everyone to actually go and read the survey or at least look at some of the tables and the numbers are very interesting. I know it's more difficult to explain them only over audio. It's called Iranian Public Opinion at the Start of the Biden Administration. This is done by the Center for International and Security Studies at the University of Maryland. You can find it on their own website. And I encourage everyone to follow your work and these surveys um, through the University of Maryland. And on that note, Nancy, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was Nancy Gallagher, Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Center for International and Security Studies at the University of Maryland. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. And if you want to support us, you can go to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast and click on support. Until next time, goodbye.